Chapter Nineteen of the Daughter of a Magnate by Frank Spearman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen Suspense. What shapes the legends of the Wikiup? Is it because in the winter night the wind never sleeps in the gorge above the headquarters shack? that dispatchers talk yet of a wind that froze the wolf and the sheep and the herder to marble together is it because mcgraw runs no more that switchmen tell of the run he made over sweetgrass the night he sent a plough through eight hundred head of sheep in less than a tenth as many seconds could the night that laid the horse and the hunter side by side in the spider park drift have been the wildest of all wild mountain nights or is it because gertrude brock and her railroad lover rode out its storm together that mountain men say there was never a storm like that what shapes the wikiup legends for three days medicine ben did not see the sun veering uneasily springing from every quarter at once the wind wedged the gray clouds up the mountain sides only to roll them like avalanches down the ragged passes at the end of the week snow was falling not until the morning of the third day when reports came in of the unheard-of temperatures in the north and west did the weather cause real apprehension the division never had been in such a position to protect its winter traffic for a year callahan blood and glover had been overhauling and assembling the old and the new bucking equipment but the wind settled at last in the northeast and when it stilled the mercury sunk and when it rose the snow fell roofing the sheds on the passes leveling the lower gulches and piling up reserves along the cuts the first trouble came on the main line in the Hart Mountains, and Morris Blood, with the roadmaster of the 6th District and Benedict Morgan, got after it with a crew together. Between the Sea Bridge and Potter's Gap, they spent two days with a rotary and a flanger and three consolidated engines and went home, leaving everything swept clean, only to learn in the morning that west of the Gap, there were four feet of fresh snow clear to Roselle. From the northern ranges came unusual reports of the continued severity of the storms. It was hardly a series of storms, for that winter the first storm that crossed the line lasted three weeks. In the interval, Bucks was holding to the directors at Medicine Bend, waiting for the weather to settle enough to send them to the coast. The Pittsburgh party waited at Glen Tarn for Mr. Brock's word to join him. At the bend, Gertrude made love to her father, forfending the awful moment of disclosure that must come, and the cause of her hidden happiness and trouble strenuously made love to her. To the joy of the conspirators, Bucks held Glover closely at headquarters, keeping him closeted for long periods on the estimates that they were in final cooking for the directors. And so dense are great people, and so keen the simple, that Gertrude held her lone seat of honor beside her father at the table of the great financiers in the dining room, without the remotest suspicion on their parts 
that the superb woman meeting them three times a day was carrying on a proudly hidden love affair with the muscular absorbed-looking man who sat alone across the aisle but the asthmatic old pastry-cook who weighed at least two hundred and thirty pounds and had not even seen the inside of the dining-room for three years was thoroughly posted on every observable phase of the affair down to the dessert orders and no one acquainted with the frank profanity of a mountain meat cook will doubt that the best of everything went hot from the range to glover and gertrude dollar tips and five dollar tips from eastern epicures could not change this for the meals were served by waitresses who felt a personal responsibility in the issue of the pretty affair of the heart the whole second floor of the little hotel had been reserved for the director's party and among the rooms was the parlor there glover called regularly every evening on mr brock who somewhat at a loss to understand the young man's interest excused himself after the first few minutes and left gertrude to entertain the gentleman who had been so kind to everybody that she could not be discourteous even if he was somewhat tedious one night after a particularly happy evening near the piano for gertrude and glover mr brock re-entering the parlor found the somewhat tedious gentleman bending very low as his daughter said good night over her hand in fact the gentleman that had been so kind to everybody was kissing it when glover recovered his perpendicular the cold magnet of the west end stood between the folding doors looking directly at him if the owner of several trunk lines expected his look to inspire consternation he was disappointed each of the lovers feared but one person in the world that was the other gertrude with perhaps an extra touch of dignity put her compromised hand to her belt for her handkerchief glover finished the sentence he was in the middle of if i'm not ordered out good night but when mr brock had turned abruptly on his heel and disappeared between the porteries they certainly did look at one another have i got you into trouble now murmured glover penitently uneasiness was apparent in her expression but with her back to the piano gertrude stood steadfast not she said with serious tenderness just now don't you know it was the first the very first day you looked into my eyes dear that you got me into trouble her pathetic sweetness moved him then he flamed with determination he would take the burden on himself would face her father at once but she hushed him in real alarm and said that battle she must fight unaided it was after all only a little one she whispered after the one she had fought with herself but he knew she glossed over her anxiety for when he withdrew her eyes looked tears though they shed none in the morning there were two vacancies at the breakfast table neither gertrude nor her father appeared when glover returned to the hotel at five o'clock the first person he saw was mrs whitney she and marie with the doctor and allan harrison had arrived on the first train out of the springs in four days 
and Mrs. Whitney's greeting of Glover in the office was disconcerting. It scarcely needed Gertrude's face at dinner as she tried to brave the storm that had set in, or her reluctant admission when she saw him as she passed up to her room that she and her father had been up nearly the whole of the night before to complete his depression. Every effort he made during the evening to speak to Gertrude was balked by some untoward circumstance. But about nine o'clock they met on the parlor floor, and Glover led her to the elevator, which was being run that night by Solomon Battershall. Solomon lifted them up to the top floor, and made busy at the end of the hall while they had five short minutes. When they descended, he knew what she was facing. Even Marie, the one friend he thought he had in the family, had taken a stand against them, and her father was deaf to every appeal. They parted, depressed, with only a hand pressure, a look, and a whisper of constancy. At midnight, as Glover lay thinking, a crew caller rapped at his door. He brought a message and held his electric pocket lamp near while Glover, without getting up, read the telegram. It was from Bucks, asking if he could take a rotary at once into the Hart Mountains. Glover knew snow had been falling steadily on the main line for two days. East of the middle range it was nothing but extreme cold. West it had been one long storm. Morris' blood was at Goose River. The message was not an order, but on the division there was no one else available at the moment that could handle safely such a battery of engines as would be needed to bore the drifts west of the sheds. Moreover, Glover knew how Bucks had chafed under the conditions that kept the directors on his hands. They were impatient to get to the coast, and the general manager was anxious to be rid of them as soon as there should be some certainty of getting them safely over the mountains. Glover, on the back of the telegram, scrawled a note to Crosby, the master mechanic, and turned over, not to sleep, but to think. And to think not of the work before him, but of her and of her situation. A roundhouse caller roused him at half-past three with word that the snow battery was marked up for four o'clock. He rose, dressed deliberately and carefully for the exposure ahead, and sat down before a candle to tell Gertrude in a note when he hoped to be back. Locking his trunk when he had done, he snuffed out the candle and closed his room door behind him. The hall was dark, but he knew its turns, and the carpeted stairs gave no sound as he walked down. At the second floor there were two stairways by which he could descend. He looked up the dim corridor toward where she slept. Somehow he could not make up his mind to leave without passing her room. His heavy tread was noiseless, and at her door he paused and put his hand uncertainly upon the casing. In the darkness his head bent an instant on his outstretched arm. It had never before been hard to go. Then he turned and walked softly away. At the breakfast table and at the dinner table the talk was of the snow. 
the evening paper contained a column of dispatches concerning the blockade now serious in the eighth district half the first page was given to alarming reports from the cattle ranges two mail carriers were reported lost in the sweetgrass country and a ski runner from fort stedman which had been cut off for eight days told of thirty-five feet of snow in the whitewater hills sleepy cat reported eighteen inches of fresh snow and a second delayed dispatch under the same date line reported that a bucking special from medicine bend composed of a rotary a flanger and five locomotives had passed that point at nine a m for the eighth district gertrude found no interest in the news or the discussion she could only wonder why she did not see glover during the day and when he made no appearance at dinner she grew sick with uncertainty leaving the dining-room ahead of the party in some vague hope of seeing him solomon hurried up with the note that glover had left to be given her in the morning the boy had gone off duty before she left her room and had overslept but instead of waiting for his apologies she hastened to her room and locked the door to devour her lover's words she saw that he had written her in the dead of night to explain his going and to say good-bye buck's message he had enclosed but i shall work very hard every hour i'm gone to get back the sooner he promised and if you hear of the snow flying over the peaks on the west end you will know that i'm behind it and headed straight for you when marie and mrs whitney came up gertrude sat calmly before the great fire but the note lay hidden over her heart for in it he had whispered that while he was away every night at eight o'clock and every morning no matter where she should be or what doing he should kiss her lips and her eyes as he had kissed them that first morning in the dark warm office when eight o'clock came her aunt and her sister sat with her but gertrude at eight o'clock musing was with her lover and her lips and eyes again were his to do with what he would later dr lanning came in and she roused to hear the news about the snow between sleepy cat and bear dance two passenger trains were stalled and on blackbird hill the snow was reported four feet deep on the level when the doctor had gone and marie retired gertrude's aunt talked to her seriously about her father whose almost frantic condition over what he called gertrude's infatuation was alarming her aunt explained how her final refusal of alan harrison a connection on which her father had set his heart might result in the total disruption of the plans which held so mighty interest together and how impossible it was that he should ever consent to her throwing herself away on an obscure western man only occasionally would gertrude interrupt don't strip the poor man of everything auntie if it must come to family the de gallians and sorotes and glovers were lords of the mississippi when our hessian forefathers were hiding from washington in the trenton hazel bushes she could meet her aunt's fears with jests and her tears with smiles until the worried lady chancing on a deeper chord disarmed her 
You know you are my pet, Gertrude. I am your foster mother, dear, and I've tried to be mother to you and Marie, and sister to my brother every day of my life since your mother died. And if you... Then Gertrude's arms would enfold her and her head hide on her aunt's shoulder, and they would part utterly miserable. One morning when Gertrude woke, it was snowing, and Medicine Bend was cut completely off from the western end of the division. The coal in the desert districts had made it impossible to move freights. During the night they had been snowed in on sidings all the way from Sleepy Cat east. By night every wire was down. The last message in was a private one from Glover with the plows, dated at Nine Mile. Solomon brought the telegram up to Gertrude with the intimidation that, confidentially, Mr. Blood's assistant in charge of the wikiup would be glad to hear any news it might contain about the blockade, as communication was now cut entirely off. Gertrude told the messenger only that she understood the blockade in the 8th District had been lifted and that the plows were headed east. Then, as the lad looked wonderingly at her, she started. Have I, she asked herself, already become a part of this life, that they come to me for information? But she did not add that the signer of the message had promised to be with her in twenty-four hours. That day, for the first time in eighteen years, no trains ran in or out of Medicine Bend, and an entire regiment of cavalry bound for the Philippines was known to be buried in a snowdrift near San Pete. The big hotel swarmed with snowbound travelers. The snow fell all day, but to Gertrude's relief, her father and the men of the party were at the wickiup with Bucks who had come in during the night with reinforcements from McLeod. Unfortunately, the batteries that followed him were compelled to double about next morning to open the line back across the plains. The gravity of the situation about her, the spectacle of the struggle, now vast and all-absorbing, made by the operating department to cope with the storm and cold, and the anxieties of her own position plunged Gertrude into a gloom she had never before conceived of. Her aunt's forebodings and tears, her father's unbending silence and aloofness, made escape from her depression impossible. When Solomon appeared, she besought him surreptitiously for news, but though Solomon fairly staggered with the responsibilities of his position, he could supply nothing beyond rumors, rumors all tending to magnify the reliance placed on Glover's capabilities in stress of this sort, but not at the moment definitely locating him. Next morning the creeping eastern light had not yet entered her room when a timid rap aroused her. Solomon was outside the door with news. The plows will be here in an hour, he whispered. The plows? Solomon couldn't resist the low appeal for more definite word. He had no information more than he had given, but he bravely journalized. Mr. Glover and everybody, ma'am. Oh, thank you, Solomon. She rose. 
with wings beating love across the miles that separated him from her. Day with its perplexities may beset, the stars bring sometimes only grief, but to lovers mourning brings always joy, because it brings hope. She detained Solomon a moment. A resolve fixed itself at once in her heart, to greet her lover the instant he arrived. She could dress and slip down to the station and back before the others awoke even. It was hazardous, but what venture is less attractive for a hazard if it bring a lover? She made her rapid toilet with affection in her supple fingers and welcome glowing in her quick eyes, and she left her room with the utmost care. Enveloped in the new market because she loved it, her hands in her big muff and her cheeks closely veiled, she joined Solomon in the reception room downstairs. The morning was gray with a snow fog hanging low, and feathery flakes were sinking upon the whitened street. Listen, cried the boy excitedly as they neared the wickiup. From somewhere in the sky came the faint scream of a locomotive whistle. That's them, all right. Gee, I'd like to buck snow. Would you? Would I? Wouldn't you? A hundred men were strung along the platform, and a sharper blast echoed across the upper flat. "'There they are!' cried Solomon, pressing forward. Gertrude saw a huge mountain-covered monster swing heavily around the yard hill. The plows were at hand. The head engine whistled again. Those in the battery took up the signal, and heeled in snow they bore down on the wickiup, whistling a chorus. Before the long battery had halted, the men about Gertrude were running toward the cabs, cheering. Many men poured out of the battered, ice-bound cars at the end of the string. While Gertrude's eyes strained with expectation, a collie dog shot headlong to the platform from the steps of the hind caboose, and wheeling about, barked madly until, last of three men together, Glover, carrying his little bag swung down, and, listening to his companions, walked leisurely forward. Swayed by the excitement which she did not fully understand all about her, Gertrude, with swimming eyes, saw Solomon dash toward Glover and catch his bag. As the boy spoke to him, she saw Glover's head lift in the deliberate surprise she knew so well. She felt his wandering eyes bend upon her, and his hand rose in suppressed joyfulness. Doubt, care, anxiety fled before that gesture. Stuma, wild with delight, bounded at her, and before she could greet him, Glover, a giant in his wrappings, was bending over her, his eyes burning through the veil that hid her own. She heard without comprehending his words. She asked questions without knowing she asked, because his hand so tightly clasped hers. They walked up the platform, and he stopped but once to speak to the snugly clad man that got down from the head engine. Gertrude recognized the good-natured profile under the long cap. Paddy McGraw lifted his visor as she advanced, and with a happy laugh greeted him. Smiling at her welcome, he drew off his glove and took from an inner pocket 
her ring and held it out on his hand i am taking good care of my souvenir i hope you're taking good care of yourself gertrude responded because every time i ride in the mountains mr mcgraw i want you for engineer glover was saying something to her as they turned away together but she gave no heed to his meaning she caught only the low pretty uncertainty in his utterance the unfailing little break that she loved in his tone he was saying yes some of it thirty feet marsh blood is tunneling on the mountain branch this morning it's bad up there but the main line is clear from end to end surely you never looked so sweet in your life gertrude gertrude you are a beautiful girl do you know that what are those fellows shouting about me not at all they're cheering you end of chapter 19